Hannah Young, and you're listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Isnick, sponsored by Philanthropic Impact. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are in the world, welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Today we have as our guest, Libra Clemens. She's a new friend. She is the Chief Diversity Officer at Twilio. This is the leading cloud communications platform, which is traded on the New York Stock Exchange under call letters TWLO. She has over 15 years of human resources, talent, and diversity and inclusion experience at PayPal, Morgan Stanley, and my alma mater as well, American Express. As CDO, she guides and scales the anti-racism framework for diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives across Tulio's global workforce. Welcome to the Caring Economy, Libra Clemens. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. This is super exciting. So we always like to start by asking our guests to tell us a little bit about their, their narrative, how they got where they got, you know, maybe where they were born and how they found their purpose. Can you give us a little bit of your background? I think it's 2022, two years ago, when diversity and inclusion blew up after the George Floyd situation. There were so many people that were dying to be in DEI. They were so eager to be chief diversity officers. And when people talk about my career path, there was no chief diversity officer when I graduated from college, nor did I wake up and be like, I want to be head of diversity. So it was very much by accident. I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia in the 70s and 80s. So it was a really interesting time around the civil rights movement. Um, Atlanta was becoming the city and it's very different from Atlanta now where there were a lot of, um, you had your Martin Luther Kings and Andrew Youngs and a lot of those very prominent figures in civil rights that were living in the city. And so my parents were very engaged and very active in politics and civil rights and so forth. So I grew up in that environment and I have been kind of naturally in that space of promoting equity at all costs. Mm-hmm. I went to a private school in Atlanta that was very conservative. And so you're constantly fighting those battles for people to really understand the value of diversity and inclusion. We didn't even know there were those terms didn't exist when I was in school, but we knew that there was something. And then I went to Spelman College, which was just like game changing for me, an all women's college for black women. And that just to me opened my eyes. I mean, having professors teach Franz Fanon and all of the most, you know, progressive and radical, like, Black writers and theorists. It was just really just super exciting for me to kind of tap into this work. From there, I stayed very much into the women's space and the women's equality space. After Uh leaving Spelman, I worked at a women's research nonprofit. Uh Stayed very close to a lot of the the writings and the um, the stories and the activism aligned with promoting women and especially women of color. So happened upon an organization where we were pulling together, and this was in the early 2000s, Toby. So, you know, this is like early on where a few of the financial services companies, they had chief diversity officers, but they were mostly, you know, kind of in HR or in legal, but they were working to promote equity for women because this is about work-life balance. You know, you didn't have your laptops or your computers so you can go home or go to your child's soccer game or recital and still do work. 
when you left your physical office, that was it. And so a lot of women were having to choose. And so that is kind of where this diversity space was kind of born in the, in the late 90s, early 2000s. And so I had an opportunity to pull resources, um, educational resources around women's equality and share that information to with the chief diversity officers to go back to their companies and be change agents. And um, someone noticed me. She became the chief diversity officer at American Express. She reached out. She said, I really think that you can help support this work that we're doing at American Express. And I know you worked there too. So that entered my journey into the diversity space in the early 2000s. And I've been sticking to that ever since. And it's evolved and changed. And we can talk more about it. Really was something that has always been part of my purpose and it's part of where I'm from and part of my background, but it's just been, it's culminated into what it is today. Clearly your parents had an important role in that. I also wonder, it was in the nineties as well when I was at American Express, but the ERGs, the employee resource groups, they were, uh, they're bountiful. They're still very much around. And I wonder if that wasn't also part of the evolution, right? It was, you know, LGBTQ, it was Latin, uh, someone had to kind of shape that and control that because there were so many different ways it could have gone. So I think along with the women, the other ERGs were probably part of it as well. Do you think? It's interesting. That was my job. So when I actually worked at American Express, my it was a global role and American Express had a number of active affinity groups. They've evolved into business resource groups, but they were affinity groups. And you are absolutely right. It was for education you learned a lot about what it was like to be an Asian person working in corporate America or a woman working in corporate America, or like you said, it was a Hispanic at the time, or LGBT or people with disabilities. And fun fact, American Express was one of those companies that had, we had religious employee resource source yes, groups. We had a Muslim, a Jewish, yes. Christian ERGs, which is still, I don't think many companies have that today. So they are the backbone of this. They are the ones that are helping every company and a lot of the chief diversity officers to drive this work. Because a lot of it is learning, it's education, it's inclusion, but they are really the ones that are behind this work. So I agree. Amex had some great ones, but that was literally my first job was to drive our engagement and the governance for all of our ERGs. It was my first, you know, comms role as well. And I just thought it was world-class education and training and all those colleagues are still very much in my life. Give us a little sense of Twilio and what it is and how it works. Yeah. So Twilio, for those who don't know what Twilio is, Twilio has been around for about maybe 12 years. We are basically the customer layer for the internet. So we power all of the engagement interactions companies build for their companies. So we have about what, 250,000 organizations engage with their customers via any digital channel, whether it's phone, text, chat, email, Twilio powers that communication. So as part of that work, we believe that business has a responsibility because we are powering content and information through communications channels. We believe that business has a responsibility to leave society better than they found it. And a lot of it is the information that's being shared within the channels that we are providing. Mm -hmm. And so 
it's an amazing company. And I have to tell you, fun fact, I, I love fun facts, but maybe it isn't a fun fact. It's a fact. When I was working at PayPal, I ran diversity for PayPal about the three or four years ago. And I heard of Twilio because they were doing some very interesting work tapping into diverse populations through power and communication. Now, every company, and I think some of those companies out there, especially PayPal, does that through their business, through their connections, through their, their philanthropy and their .org. There was something very unique about Twilio. And I had no idea what they did. I was like, Twilio, Zillow, everybody <laughs> mixes it up. And I was like, wow, this is, they're doing some really interesting work. So in 2020, as you can imagine, the world went chaotic with COVID. And we could talk a little bit more about that, but like COVID and all the racial injustice and globally, a lot of companies were like, okay, we need to do some things differently. So it was very reactive. What was so fascinating about Twilio, besides the fact that they did some amazing work during COVID, they posted a chief diversity officer role in January, 2020, that reported directly to Jeff, the CEO. January was before May, which is before COVID. Right. So it was a very proactive measure to say, we care about diversity so much. We want a C-suite executive that reports directly to the CEO because we recognize that DEI needs to be woven into all of the work that we do. Yep. And it's the same model, Toby, that we use for our chief impact officer, social impact officer reports yep. to the CEO and actually is part of the executive team. So it's a very progressive company. I think they're on the right side of, well, in my mind, the right side of promoting this type of work, whether around social responsibility, around social engagement or social activism or anti-racism. And that's what makes it so appealing, aligned with the work that they do. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. I'd love to know how does the rubber meet the road? So you have this commitment, you've got to inculcate it across your employee population. And then eventually, presumably you share it with your external stakeholders, your investors, media, and so forth. Can you give us an example of sort of how maybe one of the accomplishments you've had around inculcating DEI or even the anti-racism work there? Just to give you a bit of context, when I joined Twilio, it was September 2020. Twilio committed to becoming an anti-racist organization in June. So I did not, this was not for me. I did not join Twilio and say, hey, we're going to become an anti-racist organization. Jeff, who was our CEO and the executive team at that time were the ones that said, we are going to become an anti-racist organization. So that gives you a little bit of context for how this is being driven. So it came from them and it was a public declaration and saying, this is, this is our plan. So it was not a bottoms up. It was very top down. This is part of who we are. The second part of it is an example of it is the fact that this role does report to the CEO and there's not a lot of companies that do that. So that mm -hmm. means that Jeff and I are working together on a daily basis to ensure that this is woven into all of the work, all of the decisions that we make, as well as me being on the executive team. So in any meeting where we're making any decisions having to do with the company, the business or so forth, we are leveraging an anti-racist framework to ensure that we're driving as much equity as possible. 
we are spending a great deal of time dissecting the term anti-racism because you can imagine that, you know, everyone was like, we're going to become an anti-racist organization. And then you're like, wait a minute, what is that? Yeah, it's <laughs> it's not exactly what you know. Who is that? Well, what do we mean by that? Like we thought we knew, but we've spent, and I'm saying we, as in the executive team, myself included, I didn't know, I had thought I knew what anti-racism is, but it's a very specific term concept. And it's really about how you make decisions. It's about what you do and not who you are. We had to pull that apart. Yeah. So we spent months reading um, Ibram Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist book, where people agreed or didn't agree. Every executive team has read that book at least twice. All of our VPs, which is kind of our senior level and above, have read the book. We have had several conversations. We had the author of the book present to us, but we're in the work. And we are tying this to our leadership framework. In essence, it's this is part of leadership transformation. This isn't a side hustle. This isn't about ERGs. It's about the choices that you're making. And so we've built a framework based off of the principles and values of anti-racism, and we're using it in decision-making. So any decision that we make, whether it's about an M&A deal or about whether or not we're gonna lift our vaccine mandate or whatever it is, Toby, we're using at the very least, and we're still evolving the framework, we're attempting to use the framework in a way that helps us to check ourselves so that we are tapping into this growth mindset and doing what we can to promote equity at all costs. Is annual or quarterly or half year reviews tied to it? Are there any compensation ties to one's performance around more broadly no, because yeah no not necessarily we don't tie anti-racism to how many black people did you hire tomorrow because we don't believe that that is any indication of how well or how strong your dei efforts are anybody could hire but you retaining is another thing so yep. we do look at the data and and our attitude is we use data to move and not prove and so it's not about work proving something by hiring this many women or promoting. We look at it as a very strong and important data point, but we're using it to move the needle. And yeah. so one of the things that we've done is we have woven in anti-racist language into our employee engagement survey results so that we get a, have an understanding of like, do people understand what anti-racism is? do people see that we're using anti-racism as a way to make different decisions? So we get the tenor from our employees um, to see, are we really doing this as leaders? Are we applying this framework to the work that we're doing? But we do it at an individual company and societal level. We have like, we, you know, hiring is important, designing products that promote equity that are for all people. We do have, you know, these safe spaces modules so that when we do make decisions or companies make decisions all the time, and we're doing our best to promote equity that aligns to our values. And so we've rolled out these safe spaces so people feel like they have an opportunity to voice a concern that's contrarian, but it's a safe space so people can continue to stay in that learning mindset. Two follow-on questions that one about um, the international applications and then one about uh, detractors or naysayers. Ha what, what happens to a Twilio employee who doesn't necessarily think this is 
who they are. Have you had any naysayers or how do you deal with that? People are human. People are the product of their environment and who they know. We're unapologetic about our commitment to anti-racism. We're unapologetic about our commitment to promoting equity at all costs. And so we provide space for people who don't agree. And that's okay. Um, As long as it's not disruptive or disrespectful, you have a right to have a different point of view. But we are clear about our commitment to anti-racism. And so at some point, you as an individual have to decide how you're going to get on board or not get on board. And if it's still something that makes it uncomfortable for you, then we can have the conversation. But you will forever have naysayers. And I think on the global level, I think it's a good question. Anti-racism seems very westernized. Very U.S.-centric even, really. I mean, it, in its roots, but the reality is there's racism everywhere. <laughs> so we define anti-racism as an umbrella term for all isms, all obias. So this has everything. We're very specific about that. This has everything to do with gender, ethnicity, nationality, language, color, caste, classism, all of the groups that are typically marginalized, that's, we put it under kind of an umbrella of anti-racism. And we have done, and I have someone on my team that's based in every region where we're spending a lot of time, Toby, dissecting it and making it very relevant in Europe, very relevant in Asia, very relevant in Latin America, so that everybody understands where we're coming from and that they don't default to, oh, this is a U.S. term because it's happening all the time. Ladies and gentlemen, again, today, we're thrilled to have Libra Clemens with us. She is the chief diversity officer at Twilio. I uh, want to t- stick with that international for a moment then, uh, Libra. So how many offices approximately or employees do you have around the world? I think we're probably around 8,000 employees. And I think it's a trick question to ask how many offices we have because we, oh, part yeah. of the anti-racist work, are a remote first company. We spent a lot of time, and this is a good example of using and leveraging our anti-racist framework to make the decision to be a remote first company. We looked at the data, we reached out and connected to every group. We work with all of our wonderful ERGs to help us because there are groups that feel more comfortable not being in the office. There are people who would rather move and be closer to family members in low cost areas where we were not at one point or a lot of companies weren't recruiting from. And so I think that we feel really good about the fact that we have come forward and said, we're going to be a remote first company. We want people to feel comfortable, be able to work where they can and where they need to be and be supportive people that have family members that they're either taking care of or children or have people with disabilities who find it very challenging to go into the office or just any of the problems and challenges it takes. But what does remote first mean exactly? It means that you can first choose to work remotely and then secondly, you can go into a traditional office? Or Part of our plan for the remote first is that we have intentional gatherings because we also recognize that we're a small community and we actually, I like to think we all like each other. <laughs> so <laughs> we want to get together, but we want to make it intentional. So we have offsites with our teams and gatherings with different groups um, for those that are all living I'm making this up in Austin, Texas. We have them, we call them hubs where people can get together for dinner and drink 
breaks or just if we do have an office, because we still have offices that people can come together and meet at any given moment. The, the definition is remote first is that's the number one, that's your first way of connecting and working. And if you want to go in an office where we have an office, you can, but as teams, we want to ensure that at least once a year, you're gathering and intentionally meeting people because I've been working here for two years. I met my entire team for the first time three weeks ago. I think it's a silver lining of COVID that we have had to rethink the way we work and the way we employ. And I think hybrid is forever the way forward, but it's very particular to an industry, to an employer as to what, what's necessary. So I, I'm fascinated at this ongoing struggle to see how some brands are de dealing with it and others are just uh, not. It's not it's, we're still writing the book, I think, on this. We are. We are. And we spent a lot of time. I mean, we did a lot. As you can imagine, we did a lot of research. We looked at other, we talked to other companies. We surveyed and we continue to survey our employees. And we worked very closely with our ERGs. We started to pull the data and we just were not seeing the numbers of, you know, that we wanted to see, like a lot of people just, if you could opt in and go, you can, but if you don't have to, you don't have to. Nice. Um, we definitely saw people moving away um, from your typical headquarters, which we have headquarters in San Francisco. People were moving to different cities and we want people to make those decisions. And it helps us in terms of access to diverse talent. We have access to diverse talent all over now. Yeah. as opposed to just sticking to those major cities that actually are not as diverse as we would like. That's where the anti-racist framework is. We want to promote equity. We think that everyone should have an opportunity to work at a company like Twilio, whether you live in Alabama or not. So why not? You anticipated my next question, which was about talent pipeline. So talk to us a little bit about how you're, you're finding, helping to invest in or cultivate diverse talent in the communities in which you live and work but then how you're recruiting and retaining them, because I'm sure you've got lots of lessons that would be invaluable to some of our listeners. Yes. I mean, listen, I don't know that any chief diversity officer has a magic bullet. Like <laughs> everyone's, we're all vying for top talent, bottom line, and yeah. we're vying for it in different communities, some in more communities than others. But I think that we, we have a great company and we're attracting good talent. And part of it has to do with the fact that we're unapologetic about our work and our commitment to anti-racism. We're unapologetic about our commitment to social good and social impact. And it's actually a really fun and cool company. Like, I, do, I mean, I hate to say it sounds pretty trite, but I, I think that it attracts a certain type of people. And I think that with that, once you come in and it's not, you know, every company's going through what they're going through in response to the market, but we do our best to provide a very safe and interesting and exciting environment where people feel like they get the professional development and access that they need in order to thrive. We, you know, we partner with a number of strategic partners that help us to access top talent, like out leadership. We work with an organization called Hispanic Association on Corporate Responsibility. I love them. It's very US, but we just had a few people attend their professional development program and 
one of the most amazing LinkedIn posts I've ever read was one of the attendees from Twilio that attended the, the Hispanic Association on Corporate Responsibility Devel Development Program. And she was like, it was the most amazing thing she's ever experienced. And she thanks Twilio for it. So we are doing all of the things to attract that talent. I said part of it also, as I mentioned earlier, is we're remote first so that we can go to areas where there isn't a lot of competition and we could find great talent. Um, in cities that most companies have yet to even consider. We want to retain our talent and we have very active, very, very active ERGs with some great programming. But what I find unique about Twilio is that this opportunity, Twilio magic, which is our values, it's one of them is kind of being an owner. Own it. If you're going to do it, own it. And it's, you know, you're not, there are a lot of companies like, yeah, we want you to have the entrepreneurial spirit. No, here, if you want to do something, grab it, own it. You know, we're also a company, we're builders and it's part of the development work. Like we have developers that actually help us to, to drive our communications. And so we say that we are builders at Twilio and as builders, we're, you know, you come in, not only you owning something, but you're building it. We're still a fairly new company. And I think that is appealing to a lot of people, diverse talent, top talent, however it is, it's exciting to own something and build it. Our just commitment to this work has been unwavering since I started. We're in a very unique position to attract the talent that we want, especially our diverse talent. So you started uh, at Amex back in the day. So financial services. Yeah. And then made your way to PayPal and now Twilio. So talk to us a little bit about the whole tech bro phenomenon. It's a stereotype that seems to be um, sometimes uh, apt, sometimes not. Uh, as a woman, as a woman of color in the tech space, and how do you, how do you talk to an older non-tech person who might actually want to or might be intrigued in your company? Is there a place for older non-tech folks? We want some really interesting, and I define talent different ways. Sure. I think that people who are really, really committed to the work that Twilio is doing, it's innovative, it's game-changing, it's disruptive. I'm a disruptor. And so we want, that's talent for us. People that are going to do it wholeheartedly. We also have this value called be a positron, attracting positive energy. That's what we want. Like, I don't care how old you are. We don't care. <laughs> just there's a uniqueness to Twilio that you just got to vibe with. You just got to go with it. But I will say, I'm going to be honest. I worked in financial services. I don't think it gets more bro culture than that. Like, I don't know that tech is anymore. I think it's a specific culture. I don't know that it's bro. I think it's tech. I think you have to, if you take a step back and think about the founders of tech and who started this tech bubble, it's kind of the same folks. And so the goal is to start to sh shift that so that the, the demographic of who's in charge in tech looks different. And we're getting there. And it's not me just doing it. It's all of us collectively doing it working with schools to ensure not beyond just STEM, but that people are electing and people of color and women and pe people from marginalized communities are electing into very specific roles so that they can come in and shift the, the, the look of tech, but also the, the, the feel and the, the culture of it. For anybody that's coming from an American Express or Morgan Stanley, the biggest gap is just understanding the products and understanding the technology 
But the culture is very activist. I find that tech companies are a bit more progressive than other companies. And you could tell by the Roe versus Wade statements, you could look at all of them and see kind of who was doing what. And so there's a bit of progressiveness. It's younger. I think you have young leaders and found younger, and I don't want to say, you know, ages, but there are newer founders and newer leaders, newer as in under 20 years that are kind of driving these companies. And so it looks different. It feels different, but I don't know that it's bro. And if it is somebody tell me, cause I don't know. <laughs> well, I, don't get <laughs> I was speaking to a, a, an executive from a major tech company earlier this week and I asked him a similar question. And he said, uh, there's definitely a sense of entitlement that he's seen uh, across this particular company and the, the technicians. I don't, or the tech folks, I don't know if that's something you would share or, or disagree with, but. I think there's a sense of entitlement everywhere right now, to be honest. I do see that a lot. I think entitlement comes from what we're offering. Like if someone's offering something all the time and then they stop offering it, you're like, wait, I don't understand. This is what I expect. You know, tech companies wanted to be different from traditional companies. They wanted to be different from companies that have been around for 800 years. So I, I will say this, and I'm sure you know this because you, you know, were working in American Express and other companies like a while ago. I've never, ever experienced such outward activism and political activism like I see right now. Yeah. Don't you agree? Like, even if it's not tech or not, but like I, I remember the election in 2016 and I was working at a financial services company yes. and I remember the mood and I remember some people leaving for work, but they didn't shut down the office, nor was there a message out from the CEO, but uh, I wasn't working in tech then, but I can imagine in tech, that was a totally different day. So I, I don't know if you feel that too, if you've seen, or if you're thinking that people are more politically active and more vocal now in general across the board. Yeah, I would say that I believe uh, our media and our politics have deliberately or not deliberately forced people into sides and that they have to take a side. Whereas I believe most Americans actually want to live and let live. They don't really want to force, they, they don't, they're not here to try and judge other people. They just want to know that they're going to be all right and that everything's going to be yeah. all right. We're just in a highly fraught period. And I just think everyone needs to calm down a little bit, but still not, not that's not to say not be activist. That's right. In a civil way, because the yeah. civility is what, like I, I, as a gay man, as, a, as someone who's been active in LGBTQ advocacy for decades, I don't think guns are the answer. I'm not like saying like, let's militarize, but we do need to listen to each other and have informed debates. And so- I agree with you. We are more, I think, vocal than ever before. Successful businesses now know that they need to engage on the social issues as well as climate or, you know, governance issues. Well, I will say this. In 2020, after George Floyd, I did a whole inventory of statements and timing of the statements in response to George Floyd and what companies were doing what and when they were saying things and so forth. And you're a comms person, I've worked in comms. You know, it's not that people are being quiet. They're just running around within the comms team trying to figure out, do we, is it a period, is it a comma? Do we say this? So people don't understand the sausage making yes. when you put out a statement. But I remember capturing the statements 
And I remember the companies that blew me away. And then those that were like, ah, some five days later. And you know, and you just never know what's going on. But I remember some that were like lackluster. Last week after Roe versus Wade, I saw on LinkedIn, there were people capturing statements. I was shocked that more of the traditional companies, and I call them traditional, those companies that have been around for 50 over 100 plus years, being so much more progressive than others. And I do wonder if it's because tech has been so progressive and so activist and so vocal about these things that other companies are like, A, I need to have a point of view. B, I'm going to lose all my people because everyone's like, you guys start doing well. Because people, a lot of people will leave. They're like, my company doesn't care. I'm out. So and if it's a war for talent, given the fact that, you know, everybody and Beyonce told everybody to leave their job. <laughs> like, I'm just wondering if I, I've just, I've seen now that a lot more of these companies are making very progressive and very strong statements. Yeah, I do think tech takes some credit for that in terms of their being progressive in their stances, but also tech as a as a medium. Anyone in a company who has an iPhone is a potential spokesperson, right? So yeah. we are no longer, I think, brand ambassadors. We are really uh, conduits and foster dialogue, two-way dialogue. You can't just pronounce things. You need to actually be open to it. So I think tech has definitely played a key role there. I want to give you the last word again, ladies and gentlemen, today we've had uh, Libra Clemens with us from Twilio. Uh, words of wisdom, uh, any advice to say uh, young professionals starting out or anyone that is, might be further along in their career and they're inspired by you and the work you're doing? I remember me 10 years ago as a very opinionated and I'm sure all my bosses are like, she's so much, but I had so much anxiety about my next career move. Everything was about my next thing, my next thing. And I never trusted the process of just being and sitting in a space, learning as much as I can and figuring out how that's going to lead me to the next thing. And so I'm not saying people shouldn't be eager and they shouldn't be motivated um, because I, I am eager and motivated and I want the best for me. And I'm very, you know, very much like I want to make sure that I do my best. But I would say my advice is trust the process. I've also, you know, worked in diversity where at a time when the market crashed in 2008, our jobs were eliminated. No one, no one cared about, I mean, they probably cared about diversity, but that was just like a layer that they could have eliminated. And so I've had, I've, also been without a job before. And so there was so much anxiety, but here I am. So you know that there is a there is something there. So I would say trust the process. The other thing is I've been connected to purpose. And I love that we when we were talking earlier, you want to you asked me about purpose. I believe in purpose. Like there's a reason why I'm at Twilio at this time. And it's not for me just to jump around and go to the next thing. It, it could, you know, for me now, but there's a purpose. And so what is that purpose? And it has nothing to do with the company or my manager. It has everything to do with me. And then that's how I should start to chart my course. Yep. And I think a lot of people get it wrong where the company owes them something or they should be doing, my manager didn't do this, but like, what is your purpose right now? And if it's not serving you, 
then figure out what's next for you. But if your purpose, if you feel really clear about your purpose, like I'm here for this particular reason, it helps you so much. And you just don't have that much anxiety about like the next thing and the next thing. I could not agree more. I do a lot of coaching and um, consulting around social impact. And I tell people young and old, figure out your purpose. And it's gotta be something that you declare to yourself first and to the world that, and it's a higher purpose. It's not, I wanna make yeah. money. Yeah. Libra Clemens, thank you so much for joining us thank from Twilio Toby. today, University Officer. I hope you'll come back and I look forward to meeting you in person soon. Thank you for listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Usnick. Please share your comments and questions with Toby via Twitter at T Usnick or LinkedIn at Toby Usnick. And thank you for sharing The Caring Economy with your friends and colleagues.